This is Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. I'm Lucy May. President Biden made an unannounced trip to Kyiv this week, just days before Russia's war in Ukraine marked its one-year anniversary. The trip underscored divisions within the Republican Party when it comes to support for Ukraine. Today, we're going to start our full hour of politics with a discussion about the GOP response to the president's trip. Joining me to do just that are political journalist and host of the Political Junkie podcast, Ken Rudin. Welcome back, Ken. Thank you, Lucy. And Northern Kentucky University Associate Professor of Political Science, Dr. Ryan Salzman. Thanks for being here, Ryan. Thank you. You can join the conversation by calling 513-419-7100 or emailing talk at wvxu.org. But before we start, Ken, I believe you have a trivia question for us. What's the question this month? Yay. Yay. (laughs) Okay, here it is. (laughs) Well, Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Carolina, has announced her candidacy for the Republican presidential nomination. Uh, In history, no Republican woman has ever won a presidential primary but so the trivia question is, which one came the closest? Mm, that's a great question, Ken. If you think you know the answer, give us a call at 513-419-7100. A reminder, we only take trivia guesses over the phone. Ken, let's start talking about President Biden's trip to Ukraine. Uh, you know, he declared the United States would continue to support Ukraine as it continues to fight off Russia's invasion. But a number of Republicans in D.C. are decidedly not on board. What do you think's going on here? Well, it's clear that, I mean, starting with Kevin McCarthy, the new Speaker of the House, down, uh, there is less enthusiasm for the war among the Republican Party. I mean, that was clear from the beginning, uh, led by Donald Trump, of course, uh, who has been more of a Russian apologist than anybody else probably in the United States government or in United States politics. But what I think think, um, uh, Joe Biden has done by going there, he has reminded the world and still kept the United States allies in check or, you know, together saying that that we are going to stick this out. We are not going to uh, lose this war. We cannot let Russia lose this, win this war. And I think for the most part, uh, you know, it's a very successful trip. But but the fact is, is that the that only 30 and latest poll, only 39 percent of Republicans support more Ukraine aid. Uh, and uh, and I think um, there was a poll out of nationally, only 48 percent of Americans support the war effort compared to 60% back in May. So there is a declining uh, support for this seemingly never-ending war. uh, And the fact is more and more Republicans are being more and more outspoken against the war effort. Mm. Well, you mentioned some. I know Republican Andy Biggs, who's an Arizona Republican, Representative Andy Biggs, said the administration needs to encourage more diplomatic solutions. There's some of that talk happening. But uh, Senator Mitch McConnell was more in line with President Biden. Ryan, what do you think that says about the party? Well, I think that we just have, you know, a couple different wings of the party that in many ways could be divided along generational lines, maybe not necessarily in terms of age, but sort of how the Republican Party orients itself and who they see as their historical standard bearers, you know, from a Reagan-esque perspective, remaining strong on the international stage, understanding and embracing globalization, free trade, uh, you know, pushing, uh, you know, kind of taking a strong arm approach to uh, peace in the world. It sounds kind of odd to say, uh, you know, backing the war in Ukraine, supporting the Ukrainians 
leads to more peace, but there's certainly a concern that rolling over uh, and not supporting Ukraine could lead to further deterioration. I think we forget that early on in the Ukrainian conflict that there was a lot of concern about uh, you know Putin and his forces moving from Ukraine on into Europe. So this is a way to actually maintain peace through force. So you have that sect. And then you have another sect that um, I think that it's it's kind of very different. Uh, that is, we can't just turn it on its head, but we would say they're looking for any opportunity to uh, juxtapose themselves against the president and any uh, and the Democrats. And in this case, the Democrats and President Biden support backing Ukraine. So therefore, the logical extension of that is to say, well, we're not going to support that. And then additionally, as the poll numbers drop, as Ken pointed out rightly, um, as there's, you know, criticisms that are heaped on about, you know, whether we should be doing it, is this good for Biden? As that starts to continues to deteriorate, then Republicans are going to even become more vociferous in their opposition to the war. Um, so really, again, kind of two different approaches, one of them more kind of ideological and principle based and the other one strictly about politics. You know, I, I keep thinking about the Vietnam War and I keep remembering all these Democrats who, while Lyndon Johnson was running the war effort, President Johnson was running the war effort up to 1968, more Democrats who supported the war. But once Johnson left and Richard Nixon took over, then the Democrats, led by Birch Bayh and others, George McGovern, uh, were really becoming anti-war. So I wonder how long the Democrats would be supporting this war had it not been a Democrat in the White House right now. But right now, it seems like it's very interesting because it seems like an opposite of what we've seen in the past, that usually it's the Republicans who have been tough on Moscow in the, you know, in the old in the old days during the Reagan Nixon days and the Democrats were opposed to it. And it seems like a little switcheroo, uh, at least at the current time. Hmm. Would you have a caller on the line? Mike, thank you so much for calling. What is your guess for the trivia question? My guess for the trivia question is Elizabeth Dole. Hmm. Well, Elizabeth Dole, it's interesting. Elizabeth Dole, um, uh, her candidacy ended in January of 1999, which means she didn't even last until the primaries. She was she dropped out of the race so early that it was even before the primaries began. So she never got anything in any primary. Well, or I'm in, I, I'm embarrassed. I kind of thought I had that one, but oh. uh, I'll be listening for the answer. Don't don't worry about it, Mike. We appreciate your calling and we appreciate your listening. Thank you so much. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Ken, can you remind us of the trivia question once again for our listeners who are who are eager to participate? Well, no Republican female uh, uh, presidential candidate has ever won a presidential primary, but I'm looking for one who came the closest to winning a presidential primary. Okay, great. Let's talk some more about this, um, the the Republican reaction to the president's trip to Ukraine. Uh, One of the other remarks that that was made, uh, Ryan, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis says Biden should be more focused on borders closer to home. And that's after, you know, when when Ron DeSantis was in Congress. He was um, very much on, uh, you know, worried about about Russia and its incursions into into Ukraine. What what do you make of what Ron DeSantis has to say? Yeah, that's you know, again, it's pretty consistent with taking a political first stance. Um, and you know, 
I think we see politicians are constantly being asked about these things. That is Ron DeSantis, even though he's the the governor of Florida and has not announced any plans to guess around that. But even if he if we didn't think that he was being you know going to run at all, I think that still reporters are trying to get information, so they ask these questions about it. And uh, Governor DeSantis is very good at bringing it back to the issues, not only that are potentially more relevant to Americans, but are kind of red meat for Republicans. And in this instance, and we may be talking about some of these other issues as the show goes on, but in this instance, it's about immigration. So that use of the term borders, you know, he's referencing immigration and being worried about immigration, uh, trying to turn it back to what the Republicans see as a, a primary failure of this administration to address um, you know, a really significant issue at the borders. And that's relevant to Floridians, of course, because they have very high immigration. It's relative. Uh, it's relevant to Americans. It's relevant to Republicans in particular. So that's what he's focusing in on. But back to this idea of we're not nobody's talking about the embrace of globalization or what world peace means or what holding Putin in check means or the you know, what could happen if if those things are not maintained. Instead, we're pulling it right back to some other issue. Uh, in, in a way, this was a term that was developed in the last 10 years, or maybe popularized in, in the last 10 years uh, that we haven't talked about much in the last few years or used very much, but it's whataboutism. Okay, mm-hmm. well, what about this? Well, let me ask you a question about Ukraine, Governor. Okay, cool, cool. But what about this? And the Republicans have been very, very good for the last 10 years at engaging in whataboutism, maybe the last 20 years engaging in whataboutism. That response, that is just patent whataboutism. And Ryan is right, completely right, not only about the border and this, you know, the, the southern border that a lot of Republicans are saying, why do we care so much about Ukraine and not our southern border? But even the people, I mean, the mayor of East Palestine was on uh, on Fox News saying, what is the what is, you know, Biden doing in Ukraine? Why isn't he in East Palestine? Doesn't he care about Americans first? And so whether it's whataboutism or America first policies, the fact is, is that the the Republican Party is becoming much more isolationist, you know, America first, as as Donald Trump would say, than the Republican Party had been in the past. So, Ken, what does this say about the Republican Party's foreign policy goals? I mean, some presidential contenders have staked out very different positions on this. Yeah, well, you know, I'm thinking about that, especially like like uh, uh, Nikki Haley. I mean, basically, she comes from the, I don't know if you'd call it the George Bush uh, internationalist wing of the Republican Party. But when she was, you know, the U.N. ambassador, uh, she was not uh, shy at all about, uh, you know, expanding uh, U.S. might around the world. And I think that's that's the big one of the big debates in the Republican Party, whether it's just, you know, Focus on what's going on at home here, which is here, and uh, and uh, 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 Nikki Haley kind of approach was saying that you know we have a big defense uh, bill, we have a big defense policy because we are the leader of the free world, and if you allow you know Putin to go on through Ukraine, then NATO is next, and we can't allow that to happen. That is a debate going on right now in the Republican Party. Well, and Ryan Ken referenced this before, but there are some in the GOP who appear to be kind of pro-Russia in this in this whole thing. What, what do you make of that? Yeah, and it's, it's so easy to talk about false dichotomies that if you're you know not for this one thing, then you're for another. But when it comes to wars, it's not really a false dichotomy. I mean, it's an actual dichotomy. 
And you're right. Like some of this language, um, you know, whether it is there's been instances in the past of, you know, referencing the Russian successful Russian invasion of Crimea as being, um, you know, something that Ukrainians should just essentially get used to and accept or even justifying it by saying, well, it did used to be part of Russia. So that absolutely makes sense. Um, or, you know, trying to highlight, well, the Ukrainians are committing atrocities as well. Uh, you know, these are very, you know, clearly support statements. And I don't care. The person who says it could try to fight that. But these are statements of support for the Russians. I mean, you can't come to defense of somebody like that and not be supporting them, not just tacitly, but very explicitly supporting them. Um, and again, it just feels very upside down. If, if your listeners could see me, I'm just kind of shaking my head with my eyebrows furled because I just don't exactly get it how anybody could stand up and say I'm for Russia and we can dance around it with the nuance. But one thing that I'm really curious about in this is what if we took out going to Ukraine and Russia and we put in Taiwan, going to Taiwan and China? Uh, because the uh, Republicans have been you know, very, very full-throated in their opposition to China, and that I'm not certain that if Biden had gone to Taiwan, that DeSantis wouldn't be saying the same thing, that the issue in Ohio and East Palestine wouldn't still be called upon in the same way. Yet it's the Republicans who are pushing this narrative about needing to stand up to China. So we're back to this lens of politics. If it's bad for Biden, then that's all that matters. Ken, you brought up uh, Nikki Haley before the former South Carolina governor. Here's a 51-year-old woman of color declaring her candidacy against former President Trump and, and maybe current President Biden. He hasn't formally announced yet, but what do you think her candidacy means for the two major parties? I think the reason I hesitate with an answer is because I still can't make up my mind about Nikki Haley. I mean, she has an interesting story by far, of course. You know, her parents emigrated uh, from India. Uh, she has a, she did a very courageous thing in the aftermath of the uh, the slaughter of the parish, parishioners at the uh, at the Emanuel Church in Charleston. Uh, and then she got rid of the, uh, the the Confederate flag from the South Carolina grounds. I think that was very courageous. And then at, in, in 2016, I guess when she was, I think she was a Marco Rubio supporter uh, back then. I'm not, I don't remember exactly, but she did say that we could never support somebody who won't denounce the Ku Klux Klan. And she was very, very strong against Donald Trump saying there's, there's no way that he could represent our party. And yet when she left the governorship by becoming Trump's ambassador to the U.N., uh, she became soft on Trump and she became uh, she would defer to Trump a lot. And all that that tough language we heard in 2015 and 2016 went went by the wayside. So so I'm not sure exactly what I mean, I wonder if, you know, look, I don't know if anybody could win a nomination by being anti-Trump. I think this this party has long been uh, in Trump's hands or at least a Trumpism hands that you can't really afford to oppose uh, the former president, so uh, outwardly. But I think she had an opportunity to be, uh, you know, a profile encouraged, uh, especially when you think of what she said in the beginning. Well, look, just like J.D. Vance and so many other Republicans who were courageous about Trump uh, until it became 
disadvantageous to them to stand up to him. So, so I, you know, I don't know what to make of her. I don't know what she represents. I don't know what uh, what avenue and lane, what lane she has to get the nomination. Especially because I don't know really what she what what she represents when it comes to Trumpism. Well, and Ryan, there's the, also the fact that that she's a woman. Uh, the New York Times had an analysis that said Republican female candidates have to be tough enough, but also woman enough to align with traditional stereotypes of of femininity. How how do you think her gender might play into this? Well, it, 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 you know, at first blush, it it sets her apart. And that's always going to be a very important thing. Uh, the idea that part of Trump's lack of success after being elected in 2016 or that Trumpism lack of success after 2016 was the loss of suburban, you know, conservative or Republican women. And so there could be just in a very uh, kind of descriptive way, you know, a real benefit to her being able to to recapture that block, not just in the primary, but in the general that could really appeal to uh, funders to donors who are concerned that the same trip hazards that prevented former President Trump from being reelected in 2020 could still be present. They, you know, no reparations have been made around that, but that Nikki Haley would automatically repair those relationships. So I, I think that that's good. Um, she's also, I, I feel like I don't know, I've followed her very, very closely, but that she has never run away from being a woman. That, that sounds kind of weird, but you know, her femininity, she's um, she's never tried to separate herself from that. And so that's trying to thread that needle to your point, but she was a very strong governor being the secretary to the United Nations, puts you in circles with very strong people uh, and gives you an opportunity to stand up as well. And then of course she left the Trump administration could be sign, seen as a sign of strength too. So she thinks, and her supporters clearly think that she is able to thread that needle, but you're right. And I think that a lot of the commentary around that difficulty, that need to thread that needle is definitely going to exist. And there's nothing to me that says that she's going to be able to play by some some different set of rules. But Ryan, you don't think she's past her prime? Oh my God, that was my next question for oh, you, Oh no, Ken. did I miss something? I well, missed no. something. Okay, yeah, that's something. Ken. I mean, this was... This Let's, is so amazing. You think in 2023, somebody like Don Lemon, not that I'm a defender uh, of Don Lemon on CNN, but he actually, look, there are, there are politicians who definitely were past their prime when they ran. I mean, I would make the argument that Bob Dole was in his prime in 1988, but he was past his prime in 96. But for Don Lemon to say that a woman, not Nikki Haley, but a woman is past her prime because Nikki Haley is of the advanced age of 51. I mean, I almost fell on the floor. Well, I did fall on the floor, which is I do that often anyway. But, <laughs> but this was beyond belief that somebody would say that a woman at 51 years old is past her prime. And, and I mean, if you looked at the other women on, on, on that, that panel uh, on CNN and then also Audie Cornish, the former NPR host who also came on the show later, said, how dare what are you thinking or, or are you thinking to say such an unbelievably sexist and outrageous comment? And but I kind of think that that's there. I mean, you know, the uh, the famous thing that, you know, when when Hillary Clinton was campaigning and somebody yelled out, wash my uh, iron, my shirt. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that those stereotypes, that bigotry, that misogyny is out there. And 
and it could be to her benefit, but but it's certainly not saying much about the about the uh, you know the 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 the, the 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 country at large when you have those viewpoints expressed so widely. And that's definitely those those comments like that and the specific comment that you're referencing are absolutely absurd. We have a, a president of an advanced age that some would say, you know, is past his prime uh, and yet captured the presidency. Uh, and that's those kind of statements are absurd. But I think that that's a good example that you raise that even somebody who is so well coached to not say the wrong thing, he was thinking out loud is what he was doing. And I used to be a bartender for a long time. I was a bartender and I lived by the mantra, you know, a drunk man's words or a sober man's thoughts. And I think <laughs> we have a lot of that going on in this. And it's, it's sad. And we're constantly being reminded that people's thoughts while they're maybe learning to, uh, to keep their mouth shut. Um, I, I think the, you know, our former president kind of disrupted those tendencies uh, but but we're still going to see it. And I think you're absolutely right. And it is a, a very fine needle uh, to to be able to thread. And um, I'm, I'm not certain she's going to be able to do that because I do think that there's an idea that maybe her politics have gotten stale. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't want to presume that that's what Don Lemon was was saying. It but definitely wasn't because he said they, women, if they're past their 40s, they're past their prime. So that yeah, was not, he was no, not talking about not politics. What he was saying. Yeah, 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 no, thank you. Yeah. That's definitely not what he was saying then. Yeah. But I do think if we were to pivot it a little bit and say, you know, what has she done over the last five years after stepping away from uh, the Trump administration? What has she really done to be able to remain in the limelight uh, and to be able to continue to show that she could be the the leader and kind of an innovator in whatever 21st century Republican Party politics look like. I mean, remember how Walter Mondale would mock, would mock Gary Hart when Gary Hart said, I'm for this new politics. And Mondale said, what the heck are you talking about? You know, what's all this new politics? Uh, if you listen to what Nikki Haley said in her announcement, it was really bland and, and, and just uninspiring. It's just, you know, we need new leadership. I mean, you know, we've been saying that forever since JFK, probably. But but you need more than that. And the, and and I'm just wondering if Nikki Haley is so afraid to step out on her own and be her own person, given the fact that that you there's a there's a line that you have to follow if you're going to be the Republican nominee. Yeah. Kathy emails, I'm a Democrat, but I would like to see her run. Uh, we we do have a, a locally or a Butler County native who has announced he's running. Vivek Ramaswamy has said that uh, he's he's the biotech entrepreneur, the author of Woke Incorporated. Uh, Ryan, what impact do you think he could have on the race? Well, you know, it's probably his impact will be marginal, if anything. It depends on the size of the field and the extent that he's able to to catch some momentum and actually, um, you know, start polling and getting some attention. But what's to me really important about his candidacy is that it's all about wokeness. And we've said, Ken and I have both said on this show many times that the Republicans are really exceptional at being able to distill down ideas into single words uh, or very, very short phrases like kind of like the pro-life, you know, the phraseology. And I think that this wokeness is likely going to be the primary policy idea. I don't know if policy is the right word, but it is because it captures a lot of different policies 
Um, and it's going, we're going to hear the word woke and we're going to hear the word, you know, woke policies or woke economics or woke investments. We're going to be hearing them constantly. And I think that it has, you know, definitely become something that even for those who support those policies that we would call woke policies, that term has uh, become very negative. And so, you know, his candidacy, um, Mr. Ramaswamy's candidacy is all about that. This is what he has staked himself on. And he's going to be able to claim that he was kind of first in on this idea, at least being that explicit about it. I think we'll, we'll probably see a lot more coverage about his his candidacy and his campaign here locally for obvious reasons, since he's from Butler County. But I'm still very skeptical that he's ever going to poll above one or two percent in the polling. But if he does, and what we've learned from candidates in the past is once you start to hit that five to 10 percent range, the national media outlets start paying a lot more attention to you, start inviting you uh, to come on their programs. And then it could either bend back down towards one and two percent, or it could be the beginning of a pretty you know serious step up uh, towards um, towards actually being a legitimate candidate. But uh, not only Nikki Haley, who has, uh, you know, is a minority, has um, uh, her parents being immigrants. So there's an interesting story there. Obviously, Mr. Ramaswamy is going to have a very interesting story as well. Tim Scott, a black man from South Carolina. So this is going to be a very different looking field, field but that could also uh, diminish the importance of diversity around that. But it could also heighten the idea of wokeness when you have people who are supposedly what woke policies are supposed to, you know, advantage or um, at least, you know, provide some kind of equity and some kind of justice that um, that when they're rejecting that idea, it could also be, you know, kind of really palpable and resonant as well. But uh, I'm, I get back to your question, though, Lucy, I'm, I'm not optimistic that uh, we're going to see him on the uh, on the many of the debate stages if we end up with a larger field. I want to. We're going to have to take a break, but Ken, before we do, could you please repeat this month's trivia question? Um. Uh, let's see. Uh, the re- who is the what Republican female presidential candidate came closest to winning a primary? Uh, a woman has never won a Republican primary, but what what female candidate? presidential candidate came the closest. Okay. We'll continue with our full hour of politics in just a moment. This is Cincinnati Edition. This is Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. I'm Lucy May. It's our full hour of politics with political journalist and host of the Political Junkie podcast, Ken Rudin and Northern Kentucky University Associate Professor of Political Science, Dr. Ryan Salzman. Ken, before we keep talking, can you remind us again of what today's trivia question is? Lucy, would you please pay attention? Okay. Um, uh, no no Republican female presidential candidate has ever won a primary, but which woman, Republican woman, has come the closest? Okay. And reminder, we can only take your trivia guesses by phone, so you can give us a call to offer up your answer, or you can join the conversation by calling 513-419-7100. We do have a caller on the line who's been waiting patiently. Dave, thank you so much for calling. What is your guess for the trivia question? I'm going to guess Margaret Chase Smith. What say you can? Margaret Chase Smith. Oh, my God. The answer is Margaret Chase Smith. Woo-hoo! And this is, and this is interesting because this is... 
She's the first Republican woman who's ever run for president. This is 1964, and she got 25% of the Illinois primary against Barry Goldwater. But it's interesting that every woman who has run since, every Republican woman has run since, Elizabeth Dole, Michelle Bachman, Carly Fiorina, they were all, they got nowhere in the, uh, in the, with the primaries. And so you have to go back to the first, Margaret Chase Smith, in 64. Great and job, of course, Dave. Of course, she's, she was pastor prime, too, because right now she's like 150. <laughs> you know, speaking of one, one quick thing about pastor prime, uh, just, to, just as, a, as a PS, um, uh, Diane Feinstein announced she's 89 years old, the oldest woman, the oldest member of the Senate. She announced that she would not seek re-election next year, which was not a surprise. But there are a lot of Democrats, just like with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, they wanted her to resign early. They wanted uh, uh, Dianne Feinstein to quit early. She's not going to resign early, but she's not going to run for re-election next year uh, when she'll be 90 years old. Well, Dave, thank you so much for calling. Please hold on the line, and one of our producers will get your information so you can get your fabulous prize. Thanks. Thank you. I want to change topics now. More evidence has come to light in Dominion Voting Systems' lawsuit against Fox News. A legal brief in the case alleges that Fox personalities who spread misinformation about the 2020 presidential election knew it was false. Ken, what do you make of this? Uh, you know, the contempt that that Fox News has for his audience has never been more shown, was shown more directly as it did now. I mean, we always thought, well, you know, maybe they do believe Donald Trump's, you know, lies that the election was stolen and uh, and, and, and and Dominion voting really suppressed the vote and things like that. But as it turns out, from the conversations we've learned among Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram, is that they didn't believe it for a second. That they that the only reason they spread these lies or allowed these lies to continue on the air was because if they didn't do that, they were afraid their audience would go elsewhere to OAN and Newsmax and things like that. So to see these emails among Tucker Carlson and company saying that we got to keep, you know, pretending. I mean, basically, that's what they were saying. We got to keep pretending we believe in this stuff to keep our audience energized. I mean, that's just. It's contemptuous and it just, you know, it just, you know, we, we report, uh, they, or oh, what is it? We report, you decide. Well, they would, they didn't even report because they just, it was just, it was, it was a farce from the beginning. These emails showed it and they should, well, I was going to say Tucker Carlson and company should be ashamed of themselves, but uh, th- that's beyond comprehension. Well, Ryan and I will say, in all fairness, Fox's defense is that the network was simply reporting and commenting on a matter of undeniable newsworthiness. Uh, you think people are going to react well to that defense? Well, which people? Uh, you know, <laughs> they're, they're, they're Fox News viewers. Um, I doubt that they're even aware that these uh, these things have uh, have come to light. Uh, maybe that's not fair if you're listening now and you're a Fox News viewer. Um, you know, the mea culpa. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's I think it just reinforces what has been presumed for a while, that there's these different kind of spheres of information and misinformation in which people exist, you know, these echo chambers. And that I think it's been known for a while that the echo chamber that is Fox News and kind of all of the ancillary uh, news products that um, you know, that are similar to them, 
uh, and and attract their viewers. Uh, that when it comes to things around election fraud and election issues, and specifically the Dominion voting machines, that you know they had no qualms with um, keeping the conversation going, obfuscating facts, offering uh, you know bringing on special guests that had total disregard for truth. Uh, or a desire to find the truth. Their desire was strictly around, you know, propping up uh, Donald Trump and and trying to get him back in the White House, which we saw how that materialized on January 6th when it when it came to its, you know, kind of its its um, culmination. And so that was their focus and that their focus. And I tell this in my classes as well. We have a uh, we we have a commercial based media system, which means that our you know media outlets, they need to have viewers or listeners or readers in order to promote themselves to advertisers in order to make money in order to keep doing what they want to do and in order to keep those people on there and so that's you know fox news official comment about this being undeniably newsworthy what they mean is they knew that it's the uh, the equivalent of clickbait for watching television you know we're going to go to a commercial break but when we come back we're going to have more uh, coverage about you know election fraud and that you know they could make a claim that says well we when we came back from the break we were going to tell them there is no election fraud but we didn't really feel that it was you know that we had the evidence to dismiss that out of hand and to correct our viewers so we just never quite got there in fact here's mr pillow uh on to talk to us some more about what it is to say people keep clicking and people keep viewing and then advertisers keep renewing and they can increase their rates. We talk about loss advertisement, but you know we never think about the fact that uh, the more popular Fox News gets, the more they're able to increase their rates. So they could you know, greatly offset any loss of individual advertisers. They may have a, a waiting list for advertisers. So that may have been totally irrelevant to begin with, but then increasing their rates. Um, and there's good things about having a commercial-based system, but when you carve out a niche like Fox News has carved out, and then you have something like what happened around the elections happen, there should be a reckoning. And it's going through the courts, and a $1 billion judgment against Fox News will be a heck of a reckoning if it ends up happening. But it is a big if because we value uh, and we support and we think, uh, you know, media freedom is essential. Journalistic integrity is essential to the functioning of our democratic system. So, you know, I say it's 50-50 right now. I'm not a, no legal expert, but the things that I have read is that we really don't know which way that this is going to go. But each of these bits of information that come out um, and court filings are beautiful for providing us information that we could get no other way. Um, it's just increasingly a bad look. For Fox News, and more importantly, its personalities who were clearly engaging in this—I mean, really nefarious uh, behavior—at least when we think about you know trying to sustain our country and all that that means. Hmm. Defamation cases are def- definitely historically difficult to win. Um, we'll continue our full hour of politics just ahead. This is Cincinnati Edition. This is Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. I'm Lucy May. We're back with our full hour of politics with political journalist and host of the Political Junkie podcast, Ken Rudin, and Northern Kentucky University Associate Professor of Political Science, Dr. Ryan Salzman. You can join the conversation by calling 513-419-7100 or by emailing talk at wvxu.org. I want to talk about Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman. Uh, Of course, he survived a stroke during his campaign for Senate, and he's announced recently that he has entered a hospital to be treated for 
clinical depression. His office says he's had depression on and off throughout his life. And experts say about a third of people who have strokes also suffer from depression. Ken, what do you make of this? How will this affect his career? And and could it have an impact on how we talk about depression as a country? Well, that's the last question I think is the best question, because I remember, I mean, all of us old timers remember back in 1972 when Thomas Eagleton basically withdrew from the Democratic ticket. He was the vice presidential nominee under George McGovern. But then he they, they said that he, he was it was revealed that he was hospitalized for depression and he went through electroconvulsive therapy. And that was a stigma back then. And people were trying to understand it. So I think what, what Fetterman has done is really hopefully given a, a lot of people uh, an understanding of what depression is all about. And uh, Lucy, you're absolutely right that well, many people who suffer stroke and and go through this difficulty in communicating uh, ultimately do suffer from depression. And you see a lot of members of Congress coming out, uh, 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 Tina Smith, of Minnesota, Seth Moulton of Massachusetts, a congressman uh, who who got PS, PTSD in uh, in Iraq. Um, uh, they've all talked about their experiences, and hopefully that people are learning. But every time I feel like I'm hopeful, you have a clown like like um, Donald Trump Jr. Who this is on his podcast, he called uh, 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 John John Fetterman the vegetable senator from Pennsylvania. So, I mean, not that I have to quote, you know, I hate the fact that I always have to quote morons like like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Donald Trump Jr. and Lauren Boebert, the people who are so incendiary that they love being quoted. But the fact is there are people out there who still feel that this is to be mocked, that this is to be shamed. And and while I give Fetterman tremendous amount of credit and I, I feel for him what he's going through, but we have a long way to go in this country before people really appreciate uh, uh, that what, what, uh, what lessons can be learned from what John Fetterman has gone through. Ryan, this feels especially important for a male politician. You know, men in politics are, are expected to, to just exhibit strength and, and infallibility and, and toughness. Does this feel especially important for, for him as a man? Yeah, I, I, you know, I think of if there were any man who were able to, uh, you know, not worry about those, uh, you know, stereotypes, I think this is the man. That is, he's a man's man. <laughs> he is a former professional wrestler. I mean, he is a big man and, um, and you know, he dresses like a man. He acts like a man. And so anybody questioning his, you know, John Fetterman's manhood, you know, clearly hasn't been paying attention. But sometimes it does take those people who are the most, um, you know, the most stereotypical in one way to be able to act in the most vulnerable ways as well, at least when it comes maybe to being a man. Um, And so, you know, I don't think that for me personally, it diminishes anything about his manhood because I think he could still crush my head between his hands. <laughs> and I, I would never say that to him. Uh, but, uh, you know, there this is a good question to ask because if it diminishes people's feelings about him, then what would it do for somebody like me who's not like him and for people who even – you know, doubt themselves and their uh, their kind of their masculinity and worry that this would expose them uh, to some kind of undue criticism. And I can't even imagine trying to work through all of that when you are suffering from depression. 
So you are already suffering from depression, and then you're trying to figure out how this stacks up and everything else. It could just have this really downward spiral you know, effect. Um, he, again, I think Ken, you know, mentioned this, you know, he continues to show us uh, and teach us about what happens to a person that goes through what he has gone through. And for many of us who have people that are experiencing you know, severe ailments, if not specifically a stroke, then other things. Hopefully we can learn from other leaders about what to do. And then for those really insensitive people that are out there that can juxtapose and shine a brighter light on the people who are coming out and rallying to them. And so, you know, definitely, you know, thoughts with uh, Senator Fetterman and anybody experiencing that and, uh, I'd hate to congratulate those that are supporting him in that, but uh, but that is part of this dynamic and part of us growing as a society to be more sympathetic and be able to acknowledge these things because depression for a lot of people leads to suicide and you can't come back from that. So, you know, these are very, very real stakes. And I think people like Donald Trump Jr., they take everything lightly because they've never had much serious happen in their life uh, or it doesn't seem that way anyway. Uh, and so, um, you know, being serious about this uh, and taking it in this way, I, I, I think is extremely admirable. And again, thoughts are with him and, and his family. Well, and depression is, of course, very common in this country. And any of our listeners who are struggling with depression, I want to remind you the federal government has a 988 hotline. It's staffed 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can phone that number. They also take texts, and it's to help with uh, suicidal thoughts and crisis. So um, please call that number if you're if you're struggling in any way. Uh, Ken, I know we talked about this a little bit at the beginning, but but you didn't get into it too much. I guess the big question for some people is, will Senator Fetterman be able to fulfill his duties? He's had this stroke. He's got accommodations that are being made so that he can, uh, you know, function as a senator. What are you watching for in that regard? Well, I mean, we did, you know, of course, we did see him try to uh, do that that famous uh, debate against Mehmet Oz uh, prior to the election that some people thought he was very courageous to come out. A lot of people, uh, but a lot of people, including a lot of Democrats said that he shouldn't have risked a Democratic seat. He should have resigned his, you know, withdrew his candidacy because of what he went through. So I think, you know, right now as his political future is not as important to me as it is about as his personal future, because I mean, he's a proud man. He's, you know, as, as Ryan described him very well, he's a, a massive man. He's a he's a man. He's a man's man. I can't believe we're talking that like that. But that's the way I picture him, too. And so for him to acknowledge that uh, uh, the things he, these, that he's suffering through and had to go through this, I think we just have to hope that that he comes out of it. Can I just I know we're running short of time, but, you know, we're watching John Fetterman go through this. But can I just transition here to Jimmy Carter because because Jimmy Carter you know for anybody a certain a certain age he was a, a, a such a significant political force and 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 we're watching basically him say goodbye and and while we don't know much about mental illness and we're trying to learn I think we're also trying to learn about death and I think Jimmy Carter has just said that that I'm going to die and I'm not going to fight 
death and I want you to see, I want everybody to see what death is. And what's so amazing to me about, oh, by the way, is it okay I'm switching subjects? Yes, it okay. is. That was our next <laughs> subject. So that's perfect. No, I'm so sorry. Uh, but, but, you know, there's something, I mean, I thought at the time that he was just a terrible president. We know you're not allowed to say that. I know de- Democrats and, and people say, oh, no, we love him. And how could you say that? But but I just remember the long lines for gasoline. I remember the high inflation. I remember the, you know, the uh, the, uh, the high unemployment, uh, his mocking of Ted Kennedy when they ran against each other. And, of course, the hostages. And I was thinking, my goodness, I mean, it's very understandable why he lost in a landslide to Ronald Reagan. But I've never in my life, I don't think anybody in our lives has ever seen a post-presidency as rewarding, as uh, celebrated, as just cherished, as we've seen with Jimmy Carter, who just cared about people and humanity and and uh, human beings. And so, you know, to go from such a, 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 a subpar presidency to such a a beautiful life is just a, a, a reward that, as we say goodbye to Jimmy Carter, I think it, I think you just can't help see that in him uh, and everything he stood for. Well, and at 98, he certainly lived a, a long life uh, and leaves a tremendous legacy. Ryan, do you think he'll be remembered as a better former president than president? Yeah, I think that that's certainly the way that he will be talked about all through, you know, even long after those of us who remember him, you know, even now. And I say remember him. I was born the week that Ronald Reagan was inaugurated. So I know. Oh, my God. I know. I know you like that, Ken. That's still that makes me 42 years old. I'm hanging Uh, up. and, And my youth was characterized by Reagan being amazing and Carter being awful. And I never knew President Carter uh, as a leader, but, you know, Ken, who had lived through it and others who had lived through it, I don't think there'd be any difference there. But also then over the course of my life, he has been uh, an evidence of a few things. One of them is that life has many different acts. You know, we have um, uh, chances to invent and reinvent ourselves and also reinvent how people see us. And I know that that probably not what he was thinking, but that's one thing that I take away and and that another is that you know greatness is defined in different ways and already before he has passed long before he has passed jimmy carter has moved into a great person category for me and it has so much to do with his civic life so much to do with his dedication his spirituality his dedication to his wife all of these things that truly make us great And I think it actually feeds into American exceptionalism to keep it on the topic of this show as well. This is who we can be. We can be great and we can fail and then we can be great again. So I'm so grateful to have lived at the same time of Jimmy Carter. And I look forward to telling my grandkids about a great man like that. I've been talking with political journalist and host of the Political Junkie podcast, Ken Rudin, and Northern Kentucky University Associate Professor of Political Science, Dr. Ryan Salzman. Thank you both for your time today. Thanks, guys. Ryan, that was beautiful about Jimmy Carter. Good work. Thank you. Thanks, you've been, y'all. You've been listening to Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. I'm Lucy May. Thanks so much for listening.